I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. What's something good that's happened this week, JJ? Hmm. It's sad that I have to kind of think on that. I get it. I mean, I've recently, you know, started receptioning, and I'm in a sort of lead position, and I have enjoyed kind of talking with the other receptionists and kind of having like little group powwow sessions in between clients when we can about process improvement. And everybody's like on board. In other positions I've been in, whenever we want to talk about ways to improve things, there's been this kind of overall, I don't want to talk about that, or it's fine, or leave it alone. And I'm like, you can always find ways of improving. I'm not talking about improving for the sake of improving. I'm talking about improving because it needs it. And it's just nice that when everybody's like, yeah, I have ideas and they want to share the ideas and it's like a positive group effort to try to come up with ways of of improving things and making things more efficient. And so that's definitely a positive. It's been nice to have those conversations and not feel like you're pulling teeth. Also, it's nice to hear other people's ideas because people have good ideas. It's important to involve all the staff and listen to what they have to say because they're, you know, if you're the one doing the work, you're you're going to know and have ideas on ways to help things out. So that's a nice positive thing. Well, you know what I think um, that's related to? You're, what you're describing is engaged employees, right? Mm-hmm. Employees that are engaged and want things to work better. Mm-hmm. You know what drives employee engagement? What's that? It's not money. It's them being listened to. Mm-hmm. Yep. They're recognizing you as someone who's going to take what they say and consider it. And I think that's really big. So that's awesome. And congratulations, because that's not a small accomplishment. Uh-huh. That's a big one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know what it's like to be in the position of like, you know, you you see ways to make some improvements and you try to make suggestions. You're asked for suggestions and you make them and they're scoffed at or like that's not going to happen or and it's not anything that's unrealistic. So it's frustrating and it makes you feel like, why are you there? Because your your opinions aren't important Um, in it. It can really contribute to burnout in a big hurry, because if you're not allowed to be a part of the team and be a part of the process, it doesn't really allow you to grow either. And it does nothing for your confidence. So, I mean, I also know that I have a tendency to be a bit of a control freak and I like I see something and I want to change it immediately. And so I'm I'm having to work against myself a little bit on that. I'm like, I have, you know, four other people that I need to take into account their opinion. So. I do have to dial back my own like immediate OCD control of let's do this right here. And then I'm like, instead of me going, I want to do this. It's like, I have this idea. What do y'all think? And a lot of times somebody else may say, yeah, I'd like that. Why don't we do this in addition to or um, instead of or something like that? And I'm like, you know what? I like that better. Yeah. You, You tend to get a lot better result if you involved more minds. Absolutely. The attitude that you come with is all that matters. It makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. If you come with the attitude of, you motherfuckers aren't doing this right, you better clean up your act, but mm-hmm. you as the leader aren't willing to change any systems, processes, or listen, that is never going to work. No. <laughs> Unless you're ready to also be open to changes, you know, 
Mm-hmm. That, that's the whole um, uh, continuing to do the same thing and expecting some somehow to get a different result. Yeah. So the definition of insanity is that what that is? Absolutely. Yeah. Yay. So the main focus of our episode today is going to be to talk a little bit about parvovirus, specifically as it relates to outpatient treatment. Last time, we mostly focused on inpatient treatment just because, again, parvo is such a terrible disease. And there's so many aspects of diagnosis and treatment that it's we would have had like a five-hour-long episode if we had tried to be super comprehensive. So we decided to come back and use the snack episode to focus on outpatient therapy. When I think about outpatient therapy for parvovirus what I tend to think of is clients who can't afford inpatient treatment wanting mm-hmm. some other way to go. And I think that the term outpatient therapy is applied pretty widely to mean a lot of different things. So for our episode today, when we say outpatient therapy, we're literally meaning treatment that doesn't occur in a hospital. So these are patients that aren't being taken into the hospital They're not having IV fluids and things like that because when owners ask for home treatment or outpatient treatment, that's usually what the owners mean Mm -hmm. is like, we need something super cheap. Like uh, we can barely afford to even pay for the exam fee. We have zero other resources, but we don't want to euthanize our sick puppy. So what are we going to do? That's going to be how we kind of talk about outpatient therapy. We're also going to talk about the Colorado State uh, study that uses the term outpatient therapy. We're going to go a little bit more in depth on that here in just a few minutes. JJ, as far as outpatient therapy goes, and again, what we're talking about right now is literally zero funds We cannot do anything even remotely major, but we don't want to euthanize. What are we going to do? What sorts of things do you typically see done for those patients? You know, we try to tell them that supportive care is the best thing, really the only thing you can do. So when you're at home, the things that you have available are going to be limited. I mean, they're not going to have a bag of IV fluids at home that they can administer. So, um you know, typically they'll do things like give them Pedialyte, maybe offer them baby food. Um, so there's not really a whole lot of options. Um, yeah, maybe some oral medications. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, in my experience, if they're able they to just take vomit them up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The clinics that I've worked at, I can't think of one that would feel super confident giving owners like needles and syringes to take home. I think it's too much of a liability. That and like the most common injection for nausea that uh, most clinics have to offer is Serenia. And it can be a a little bit of a stinging uh, injection. Mm. Oh, yeah. I would imagine. I didn't even think about that. The first time an owner tried to give it, they probably wouldn't want to do it again. I could just kind of imagine the... (laughs) Anybody that went to give an injection and, you know, the dog's kind of squeaking at them and they're like, oh, nope, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I hadn't even considered if someone is trying to give a subcutaneous injection of Serenia at home and it burns and the puppy jumps and now half of it has gone out onto Mm -hmm. the fur and, you know, it's it's not cheap. Plus, Serenia is expensive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's it is not an inexpensive drug in and of itself. 
So the things that I have seen being used the most in true home care, meaning not, you know, we don't have any resources. Sometimes clinics will have like a good Samaritan box with Mm -hmm. medications that they might be able to salvage some antibiotic at no charge and do some client education, maybe about keeping puppies warm and making sure that they know the difference between syringe feeding and force feeding, because mm-hmm. there is a difference. Um, mm-hmm. And that's it. I don't think that there are any studies that look at true in the trenches home care, like what we're describing, versus hospitalized care. I don't mm-hmm. think that those exist. We're going to get to the Colorado State University study here in just a minute. That that does not qualify. Um <laughs> In my clinical experience, though, those guys where they literally cannot do anything except super basic things, I don't have many of those survive. JJ, have you seen them make it? No, you have the rare one every now and then that probably was going to be destined to survive, whether they had any type of supportive care or not. But for the most part, the survival percentages are pretty low. I agree. I would say if I had to ballpark it less than 50%. Yeah, maybe even less than 25% when we're truly talking about zero funds to do anything else. When I call to check on those, the owner is always like, yeah, they died. Mm -hmm. Um, So the main reason that I wanted to talk about those sorts of situations first is because that's what I see the most. Parvo positive puppies who are very ill where the owners have literally no money at all to help them and also don't want to make a decision for humane euthanasia. That's going to be in sharp contrast to what other people talk about when they talk about outpatient therapy. Um, so let So let's talk about the Colorado State University study really quickly. A few years ago, I started hearing about this study. Gosh, at Colorado State, they've developed an outpatient protocol where 80% of the puppies treated at home survive. That's kind Mm -hmm. of what I started hearing on the street, you know, and I Mm -hmm. was like, Holy monkeys, like what I must be doing some something really wrong because that has not been my experience, right? Yeah, that's like, um, I mean, pretty good for hospitalized patients. I mean, not to I mention agree, the outside. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think if you had said a uh, greater guess, like nationwide, what percentage of puppies do you think with Parvo they get hospitalized, survive? I'd have probably said 85 or 90 percent, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, most of them recover, but man, sometimes I just don't. Mm-hmm. Um, Home care, I would have said, oh, less than 50, maybe mm-hmm. even less than 25, right? Um, so then when I started hearing 80% of home care surviving, I'm like, holy crap. Like, do you guys have magical unicorn dust or something? Like, what <laughs> okay. is happening? And so then I read the study. And when I was reading the study, it became clear to me why the survival <laughs> rate is that high. So we're going to go through the study and talk about... Uh, some high points, uh, because I think uh, a lot of people are probably in my position hearing, oh, outpatient uh, therapy has a much higher survival rate than we thought, and kind of taking that at face value and being like, okay, cool, like, maybe we need to look at doing that more. But if you don't read the study, there's some key things that you're that you're not going to know about that might kind of turn that opinion well, I think it would definitely turn that opinion back around to hospitalization is best. Um, mm-hmm. So before we go into this, I first want to say that this is in no way meant as an indictment of the people at Colorado State that did this study. I think this is an important study. I think that the term 
outpatient maybe maybe we could have used a different term besides outpatient because of the connotations that come with that mm-hmm. and you know all it takes for the general public to kind of run wild with an idea is to sort of read a title you know like the general public is not skilled at reading and interpreting study data so they kind of like look at the headline look at a couple of bullet points or maybe they read the conclusion and then are like boom, I'm ready to go, you know, Mm -hmm. this study proves X, Y, Z. And so then I think it's tempting for owners to believe vets are only in for the money. Vets only want to take your money. Vets are talking about hospitalizing your parvo patient because they're greedy or something. Mm -hmm. But look at this study. This study says outpatient therapy is 80% effective, 80% live. So let's just do that. But the owners haven't dug into the study and read what all that entails. And then it proliferates on message boards. Mm -hmm. Um, Our audience, I think, is mostly veterinary staff and veterinarians. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm hoping that we can arm you guys with some solid information to be able to confidently and calmly talk to owners about this information and potentially help shed some light on why there might be that discrepancy in the owner's mind between the recommendation for hospitalization and outpatient care. Um, and I think it's because there's too wide of a definition of outpatient care in general. But anyway, so again, Colorado State University, thumbs up. Good mm-hmm. job. We're excited about your study. We're just wanting to point out some things that people might not notice at face value. The study in question that's often referred to as the Colorado State Study is titled Evaluation of an Outpatient Protocol in the Treatment of Canine Parvoviral Enteritis. And it was published in the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care in January 2017. Essentially, the study looked at two groups of dogs, So one of the um, important things to remember is that the study size is a little bit small. So the study took 40 dogs total. 20 were in the inpatient group and 20 were in the outpatient group. I'm going to go through what was involved in inpatient therapy versus outpatient therapy first. And then we're going to kind of talk about the pros and cons of uh, this information. The results of the study were that the inpatient group showed a 90% survival rate and the outpatient group showed an 80% survival rate. When the patients were initially evaluated, all of the patients, meaning the dogs in the inpatient group and the dogs in the outpatient group, all of them had an IV catheter placed and had IV fluid resuscitation. That occurred before the puppies were divided into groups. They also had blood sugar monitoring and any hypoglycemia was corrected, again, before being divided into groups. The patients were not divided into groups until after they were fully hydrated and their blood sugar was back in check. (laughs) The inpatient group was given IV fluids, serenia every 24 hours. They were treated with IV antibiotics every eight hours. When dextrose and potassium supplementation were needed, those were administered IV. The puppies were syringe fed. Again, this isn't force feeding. There's a difference between those two things. Every six hours. No feeding tubes were used, though, in the inpatient group. It was just syringe feeding. Rescue criteria were provided for pain and nausea. So if the baseline treatment that was standardized across the inpatient group still had a puppy that was very nauseated or super painful, then there were basically um, 
a list of criteria to evaluate them and to give them additional medications. The outpatient group, the first thing that's important to remember about this group is that they weren't really outpatient. They were still all treated in the hospital. So these puppies weren't released home into their normal home environment, and it wasn't their lay people owners administering treatments. The treatments were still administered by trained professionals. The puppies were housed, you know, in the hospital. They were not treated with IV fluids. They were treated with subcutaneous fluids. But those subcutaneous fluids were administered every eight hours. So, you know, three times a day, they're getting subcutaneous fluids administered by trained professionals. (laughs) Their temperature was monitored and active warming was provided if they needed um, temperature regulation. They were given a single injection of Convenia, which is a long-acting cephalosporin antibiotic. Dextrose and potassium were supplemented orally in this group. But monitoring was done, so um, so electrolyte and blood sugar monitoring was performed even in the outpatient group. They were given Serenia once daily, and again, the group was syringe-fed, not force-fed, but syringe-fed every six hours. Again, not by lay people, but by trained professionals. And then the same rescue criteria were provided for pain and nausea. So again, in the outpatient group, they had trained professionals monitoring for things like pain and nausea, and additional medications were given if they were needed. So when you look at the difference between the two groups, really the only substantial differences is the use of IV medications, right? So Mm -hmm. like IV fluids versus sub-Q, you know, dextrose potassium supplement IV versus orally. Then also, you know, IV antibiotic every eight hours as opposed to a single long-acting injection. Like, really, those were the only changes. So I have a couple of issues with calling this an outpatient study. I had more than a couple. (laughs) You have more than a couple. And again, it's not our intention to be assholes no i mean Um, i think that they were trying to say if you're going to do outpatient care this is the this is a high standard this is the best way to do it it's just not gonna be practical in the real world yeah i agree and i think we can kind of look at several things so let's just talk about cost for Mm -hmm. a minute you know you have experience as an office manager as a receptionist as a technician um as far as cost of these these types of things. Let's say first that an owner was taking the pet home, but bringing the dog to the hospital every eight hours for medicine administration, for testing, for these sorts of things. What do you think about the cost difference between that and in hospitalization? Do you think the cost difference is substantial? No, it would be very minimal difference. And I think so too. Yeah. I mean, plus you would increase the risk of contamination with having them come back into the clinic that often. So it's kind of like a lose-lose, in my opinion. I'm trying to imagine a situation in which a parvo puppy was transported to the daytime regular general practice three times throughout the day. At that point, you just have to kind of set them up a room, you know, Mm -hmm. and then like not, so it kind of knocks out a whole exam room for every day that they're being treated whole exam room and then dedicated staff members Mm -hmm. there's any new puppies that are coming in for the day you would have to make sure they're coming in way away from where this one's coming in so i mean it just kind of increases risk for other people's patients um, other people's pets the ppe involved 
So you're talking about like three separate gloves, three separate, you know, I see it being more expensive for the clinic and way more. Oh, yeah. There's not, there's very little difference in costs using that protocol for outpatient versus inpatient. I mean, I agree because you're still, I mean, even just supplies. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're still using Serenia, which is expensive. You're using Convenia, which is super expensive. Mm -hmm. You're still using supplies wise iv fluid bag to do the sub q fluids yep you're still using a line you know that kind of thing so we're talking about a one to two dollar sign difference in the total not per day but total over the whole treatment you know i just feel like if we're given iv fluids it takes less time right yeah so doing this kind of in the real world i don't think it works um no so then you're if you don't do that then you're looking at okay we're going to send this puppy home and the owner is going to administer sub-Q fluids in these medications. So there, if we're going to do that, we just got to think about a lot of things. We got to think about the staff time of training clients to properly administer medications. Mm-hmm. They've got to dispose of the sharps. Well, and to do it like like in the study, they would still have to come at least once a day to the clinic to have um, blood sugar and electrolyte monitoring. So we're talking about at least one trip a day to the clinic. You have to have a client that is able to dedicate that amount of time. I mean, most people are at work all mm-hmm. day. And yeah, there are some people that aren't cut out really for to doing that sort of thing. They Either they're squeamish or they don't want to see their animal art that's already so sick have to go through more needle sticks and that sort of thing. So, you know, not everybody can do it. Yeah, you're right. I think client selection for this protocol would be potentially even more important than patient selection. Yeah. Because, uh, (laughs) you know, a lot of people are terrified of needles. Yeah. Somebody that's like super dedicated to providing nursing care, who's independently wealthy and has a lot of time on their hands for... The next four to five days. Like paid leave. Yeah. Uh-huh. Some owner has to be home with the pet for three to five days. Mm-hmm. This would not be a situation where you could just like go to work for 12 hours and leave the puppy completely unattended. But I mean, how many households exist where both people don't work? Maybe it's more than I think, but I don't know. I don't know of many households where only one person works. Most of the households I know of, two people work. Yeah. Bottom line, there are some issues with this. I'm going to say, I don't think that we can confidently say that outpatient therapy gives an 80% survival rate because the study didn't really use outpatient therapy. I would be really interested to have this exact same study repeated, but have the outpatient group actually sent home with owners. Mm -hmm. I think that if this was done by owners instead of trained staff, that the numbers would be different. Yeah, a lot different. I feel confident that they would be. How much? I don't know. That would be a super valuable study, right? Yeah. They're going to be different, but what if... I mean, heck, what what if it was just a little different and we're like, hell, 70% survive? I mean, to me, that'd still be pretty good. Like, it's parvo, right? So I would be super interested to see that study. You know, and I don't know, it takes a lot of funding to do something like this. So I would be super excited and interested to read a study that did measure literal outpatient therapy in in a structured way like this, Mm -hmm. just to see what would happen. Because if we could come up with a viable outpatient protocol, you know, and that a reasonable pu- number of puppies survived without, you know, without suffering. Because that's the other thing, mm-hmm. is we don't want them to suffer. 
And um, I think sometimes euthanasia is not the worst possible outcome. No, there are um, way worse things than The worst than possible death. outcome is, yeah, slowly dying of sepsis and dehydration yeah. for five days. Way worse than euthanasia. If I had to pick, yeah. I would pick euthanasia over that. So it's just so tough. Um, but I know of, I do know of veterinarians that utilize outpatient protocols with what they feel like is an acceptable survival rate. Again, I don't know if it's been measured. It would be super interesting to to find out, maybe do like some sort of in-clinic studies to try to figure this out and see um, everyone kind of, I think, has their own pet protocol that they like the most and they feel the most comfortable with. And I'm sure that it would be difficult to standardize it for a study, but it it could happen. When I was reading on Vin earlier, I was reading um, several threads about outpatient therapy. Some of them discussed the Colorado State study and, and others were just saying kind of like what they've traditionally done. Um, there were mentions of veterinarians kind of mixing up a sub-Q fluid bag that had like, a, you know, B vitamins in it. Um mm-hmm. And having the owners administer that sub-Q on a schedule. And if you had, you know, if you had clients that you felt comfortable sending home, you know, medications in syringes for, I mean, that's a maybe. I think you'd, you know, say you have the initial trip to the hospital, you give the convenia then. Okay, that's fine. That doesn't have to be repeated. How long does Serenia stay active if it's pre-drawn up into a syringe, you know? A bottle of Serenia is super expensive. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that we would want to send a bottle home, right? Mm-mm. I'm just trying to think of ways that this could be managed. Some people send home oral medications still um, mm-hmm. and just say, like, well, it's better than nothing. I mean, yeah. and maybe. And not all parvo uh, dogs vomit. I mean, majority of them do, but. That's true. You have the, the yeah, rare right. one that doesn't read the book and is, you know. Some of them don't have diarrhea either. They just look like crap and feel like crap. Those are the yeah. ones that, you know, I'm like, oh, good. I don't have to clean up your poo eight times in a well, day. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Those make me nervous because mm-hmm. I worry that the reason they don't have diarrhea is because they don't have enough, like, you know, fluid. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like they're so profoundly dehydrated that there is, oh, yeah, they that, don't have water to poop out. That previous statement was purely from a selfish standpoint. Of, oh, I see. Well, no, I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I get it, but, um, but yeah, if you have a parvo puppy that's like looks like death warmed over, but is not having active diarrhea and vomiting losses, like, ooh, it makes me worry is because they're a raisin and they don't have anything left in there. Um, to diarrhea out. I hate Parvo so much. Please just vaccinate your dogs, y'all. I yes. <laughs> I was listening to the audio of our Parvo episode, the one that um the one that was released for the for the listeners, it was released last week, but we actually recorded it a few weeks ago and um I was listening to the audio and I was just like, man, we are mad about this. Mm-hmm. But like, you know what? <laughs> I feel righteous indignation at the you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, because I mean, I, I was just, yeah, granted, this is Alabama. We can't talk specific prices either. But I mean, I, I was making a treatment plan the other day and looking at the different vaccine prices of all the vaccines that are offered for dogs. Uh, the distemper parvo vaccine was the cheapest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and I, I mean, $2 signs. Uh, and on the low yeah, end of it's that. Not, so. <laughs> it is not expensive. No. Oh, God. 
Mm-mm. And yes, when they're, they're a well, puppy, they have to have one every three weeks until they're 16 weeks. Um, but, you know, starting at age six weeks, ideally. But still, I mean, that's that's temporary. Yes, it's more expensive at first as a puppy. And then it's yearly after that. Or every three years. But just, I mean, just do it. Yeah. It's... <laughs> Over the years, I've seen owners get puppies, like, continuously. And every single one of them gets parvo. And -hmm. every single one of them doesn't ever get any vaccinations. And I'm like, what the heck? What? So, you didn't vaccinate this puppy and it died of parvo. And then you you got a new one, didn't vaccinate it, and it died of parvo. Then you got a third one and didn't vaccinate it. And now it's being hospitalized for parvo. Like... Do you maybe see ways that you could change your behavior that would avoid suffering for I mean, all these at that pets? point, I, I feel like you that's, jerk. you know, uh, neglect. you're killing the yeah. dogs. You're killing them. You know, it, especially if you're aware, if you know that you've had a previous dog with Parvo, you've been told how it's spread, how stable it is in the environment, and how vaccination is going to help prevent it, and you continue to do that, that's, I mean, that person needs to potentially be reported because that's yeah. just well that pisses me off yeah it's, it's frustrating but i've seen it i mean more than one time mm-hmm. where i just want to like just <laughs> i don't know do something really dramatic it's like stop <laughs> getting just animals makes me crazy please don't reproduce yeah. yeah not cool not cool mm. so um Let's talk, JJ, real quick. Like, I think we've kind of covered the study. Mm-hmm. I am a little bit nervous to listen to the audio because I feel like we're maybe too aggressive. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> what do you think? Some of this needs to have aggressive um, stance, though. Yeah. Like, it- yeah, I, I just I will say that I'm a little bit nervous. Like, well, I think the chances of someone at Colorado State listening to this podcast, I don't know, maybe they're. Maybe they're low. I don't know. But I don't want anyone who worked on that study or who, who is, you know, involved with that institution to to be like, oh, you know, here here we are roasting your study. You know, that's that's not. No, that's not. That's not my intention. My intention, my takeaway is let's be cautious about how we use the term outpatient therapy because it can mean lots of things. Yeah. And in this often quoted study, what it means is that we IV fluid resuscitated the pets first. That's kind of, kind of like cheating. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, and just, you know, uh, for the general, everybody, you know, <laughs> if you read something that sounds too good to be true, probably read the rest of it because it probably is. At that point, you yeah. just might as well do hospitalization. I mean, I guess there would be the rare can't. client that yeah. is so against having their animal away from them that they would rather do that sort of thing. And if they have the means okay. to do it, then maybe that would be work out. But that's such the rare person. Here's one thing that I have not considered before right this second. This study was done, obviously, at a referral institution, right? Mm-hmm. Even though the, quote, outpatient interventions that they're doing are substantial and would require a large financial investment, maybe it is a big difference if you're at a referral institution. We can't get into listing prices on this podcast because there are regional differences and we don't want to violate any FTC rules and all of those things. But maybe the 
difference in cost is that dramatic because they're used to referral institution cost rather yeah. than general practice cost. It's a complicated microeconomic situation, but general practices will never be able to charge fully what their time is worth, right? So like, do I think that general practices recoup their costs on those? No. Every Parvo inpatient at every hospital I've ever worked at probably loses money for the clinic. I, I mean, I'll be honest, mm -hmm. because maybe the superficial costs of caring for that pet are taken care of. But I guarantee you that no one has sat there and really consciously looked at, okay, how many times are staff members coming up after hours to check on the patient and do treatments and we're not charging the owner for that at all, right? Mm -hmm. How many times those things happen? Whereas in a university setting, you better believe everything is charged for, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe there is a huge gap from that standpoint, and I'm just kind of looking at it differently because I've only ever been in general practice, really. Yeah. Well, in ER. If you have, like, the average socioeconomically challenged client, they can't do either. I think you're 100% right. I think you're right on. For many of my clients who bring in a parvo-positive dog, it does not matter if what you're recommending is $1,500 or $800 or $600. It might as well be $1 trillion because they don't have it. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's their reality. Most of them is, Doc, I have $120 that I scraped together. That's all I have. And it's all I'm able to get for the next month, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so... For $120 that a client is scraping together and that's all that we have, can the clinic afford to provide the level of outpatient care outlined in this study? No. And then it gets into the whole, you know, the whole like vets are greedy, they're only in it for the money thing, which is I'm very sensitive about because mm -hmm. veterinarians are people and veterinary staff are people and people have feelings and um, want to do the right thing, but we can't save every single, you know, we see so many animals in general practice every day that need care that the owners can't afford. If we shouldered that burden for every single pet, we would go out of business before lunch. Mm -hmm. And now we can't help any animals. And so it's very tough. Yeah. JJ, mm -hmm. let's talk about a less than $100 parvo treatment. If we had to Come up with something like that. And again, FTC, we are not price fixing. We are just generally shooting the shit about stuff mm -hmm. on a podcast. So let's just say a less than $100 type of thing. Hmm. We've got to get an exam. Mm -hmm. I don't know that you can even afford a parvo test for that. So no, I don't talk maybe about we exam. diagnose it based on clinical symptoms, right? Right. And then... But you're going to treat the same either way. Mm-hmm. If you save the money of the parvo test, I mean that gives you. Um, you said they had what two dollar signs to work with. Yeah, <laughs> we can't. It's so hard because we can't say what things cost because it, you know maybe we can start talking about it in like numbers of cupcakes. <laughs> like we've got. <laughs> we can only spend ten cupcakes on this dog. An exam is five cupcakes. <laughs> Go. Now we got five cupcakes left, right? And if you did a parvo test, that would be at least the five other more five cupcakes. cupcakes. <laughs> Possibly exactly. six to seven that okay. we don't have. 
this this might be a legitimate way to talk about it. I like it. The cupcake. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cupcake scale. Okay, so say we come in, we think, yep, this guy's got parvo. Okay. We're treating ducks We're, with cupcakes. Yep, that's right. It's a duck. It quacks. <laughs> I was so just remembering that. We only got 10 cupcakes. So we're going to say, okay, we think this is what it is. And and a parvo test doesn't in any way help the pet feel better, right? No. It doesn't. So um, if we've only got 10 cupcakes and we already spent five of them to get the pet uh, evaluated, then we only got five left. I think skipping the parvo test. Mm-hmm. I, I'm right there. What if we took one cupcake, drew a smidge of blood, we could check a blood sugar, we could do a blood smear. Mm-hmm. I think that we could make that work for one cupcake. I mean, the average cost of glucose, like a single reading, I think is a two cupcake Is it situation. Yeah, maybe it is two cupcakes. Now, the slide, I don't, that's one thing that most clinics that I've worked at has never really had like a single charge for that. Because a lot of times they end up doing it to kind of verify what the machine's saying or they just yeah. want some more information on their own. So they just do it. Yeah. What if we spend two cupcakes on a glucose strip and then trip and fall? The blood happens to land on a slide in a perfect smear. Then it we drop it into the stain accidentally and, uh-huh. all, and then it lands on the microscope. Yep. So zero cupcakes for nothing, that. There's nothing you can do about that. I mean, that's just yeah. fate. Just gravity. So... <laughs> I don't think there's a way without <laughs> discounting services, but uh, so complicated. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I would do is I would I would do a clinical interest slide and and no charge the client. Mm-hmm. And I would look and just see are there white blood cells. And if there aren't, I'm going to be like, yo, dog, have parvo. Then we somehow maybe we use two cupcakes to get them a bag of sub Q fluids Mm-hmm. And we use one cupcake to get them some type of antibiotic. Maybe a... Um, <sighs> Damn it. We're out of cupcakes for an anti-emetic, JJ. Yeah. Maybe the donation box has an antibiotic. Maybe the donation box has an antibiotic and we can use... We're, yeah. just, we're out of cupcakes. Yep. Uh, so this is why it's so hard as a general practitioner. I think the cupcake metaphor is great. Mm-hmm. Is it a metaphor or an analogy? Um, yes. I don't know. <laughs> Great. Awesome. So, um, either way, the cupcake example, I think, might be a good way to kind of help staff members that aren't involved in the in the day-to-day financials or even owners understand why veterinarians can't just give away tons and tons of free services because mm-hmm. veterinary clinics operate at an incredibly small margin in general. Now, you can look at benchmarks and things like that. Those those practices that are in like the top 100, they do a little bit better, but it's not by giving away services that they do better. Most clinics, though, when you look at just most across the board clinics are operating in the red part of the year mm-hmm. or all year, <laughs> you know, um, or very close to it. We just can't afford to to treat everybody's animal for free. It's just not a reality. So yeah, subcutaneous fluid therapy that we teach the owner how to do at home. Give the owner a handout about making rice socks warmies. You mm-hmm. know, the owner's going to have to find other cupcakes to buy the rice and the socks. Maybe they already got them. Mm-hmm. Hopefully they got a microwave. And then warn the owner about thermal burns that can occur. But, mm-hmm. you know, that way we can at least keep puppy warm. Demonstrate for the owner the difference between syringe feeding and force feeding. And say a little prayer yep. to the deity of your choice. What else can we do? JJ, what, I mean, what do you think? 
There's not much, really. And I mean, I would like to kind of say, if you are in a financially strapped situation like that, please be upfront about it at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, we're going to make a treatment plan and we're going to go over it with the client and the client's going to be like, okay, I don't have that many cupcakes. I have this amount of cupcakes right. to work with. And then we can adjust the plan accordingly and do the very best we can for you. Now, if you come in and you're like, I have unlimited cupcakes. I have a damn bakery in my house. So you do whatever you need to do. And then we do that. And then when it comes time to pay the bill, suddenly, wait, I have zero cupcakes. That's not cool. That's when you're going to have very, very frustrated veterinary professionals. And they're not really going to want to help you. They want to help your pet. But they're going to be like, look. We have put all this effort into this, and we've put our cupcakes into this now. It's really shady. It's dishonest. And you're not going to go very far with that. We've mentioned several times in recording this episode and also in the original Parvo episode, the correlation between parvovirus and socioeconomic disadvantage. And Mm -hmm. I, I think I even said in the audio from the the main Parvo episode, you know, that I didn't have a study that I could point to that talked about geographic distribution or socioeconomic status, but that my experience was that areas of socioeconomic disadvantage were overrepresented when it came to Parvo cases. And so I looked specifically to see, are there studies? And I found one. And it's from Australia, not the U.S., but... um. After reading the study, I think it can be extrapolated to our location as well. That study is called Socioeconomic, Geographic, and Climatic Risk Factors for Canine Parvovirus Infection and Euthanasia in Australia. And it was published in Preventative Veterinary Medicine in January 2020. So it's a super new study. Mm-hmm. The study found that socioeconomic disadvantage was the strongest risk factor for canine parvovirus. So not just a factor, but the single strongest factor when it came to puppies getting parvo. The hottest month of the year was associated with increased parvovirus cases, and low rainfall was associated with high canine parvovirus cases. So if you have an area then that is hot, relatively dry, and the residents experience socioeconomic disadvantage, that is going to be a parvo hotbed. And when I then think about the areas that I've lived in (laughs) and worked in, that I can say like, yep, this area has a high incidence of parvo, mm, that that bears out. I mean, that that strikes me as accurate based on um, based on what I've observed. What about you, JJ? Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe not so much the dry Because we tend to, I mean, Uh I don't know, during the summertime, we can have some dry. There's definitely been some drought issues. And the southern states, uh, like Alabama, where we live, are certainly sort of known for a higher incidence of parvo. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had multiple veterinarians, kind of as we're talking to more and more vets since we're doing the podcast and things like that, you know, in talking to people about the parvo episode, multiple people said to me, well, in Alabama, you guys, man, you just have to deal with it a lot. And um, it had never really occurred to me, I don't guess, like, because I've always lived in Alabama. I thought, well, parvo is just something that you deal with all the time, but apparently that's not accurate. <laughs> apparently there are places in the U.S. where they're like, mm, parvo, we, we we see one of those a year. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> Uh, But again, socioeconomic disadvantage, the single 
highest risk factor, the single strongest risk factor for Parvo, which sucks. Yeah. Um, the last thing that I had uh, on our list here to talk about is to revisit some of the information that we talked about last time. We mentioned a couple of things in the last episode about the SNAP parvovirus test from IDEX, and I mentioned that IDEX was going to have to get back to me about some of the questions I had. Those questions specifically involved their online FAQ, and the, the one bullet point in particular from that FAQ that I was shocked by was the statement that you should not use the swab included in the IDEX SNAP Parvo test kit to do a rectal swab. And <laughs> my position was, what? Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's literally how I was taught to do it. And so then we had speculated, like, how long has that been a thing? Did, did maybe even the instructions used to include directions to do a rectal swab? Like, what, you know, are we just misremembering this? And so... IDEX did get back to me, and I tried to get the IDEX representative to actually come on the podcast and talk. IDEX higher up uh, official people were not comfortable with the rep coming on the podcast. I know she was super disappointed um, about that, but yeah. but they did um, say it was okay for me to read kind of from an email statement about it. So what they said was that the rectal swab technique has never been recommended. <laughs> That 100% of the data collected to get the test approved is done on fecal samples. So, like, a pile of feces collected from a, a dog, the feces is tested. So, because the feces is tested in the study, that's what they have to put on the insert. So, that's why the FAQ says that a rectal swab is not recommended. Additionally, the veterinarian raised some concerns about discomfort related to performing a rectal swab. Lube might interfere with the ability to coat the swab in feces. Mm -hmm. But bottom line, they don't recommend using it rectally, mm -hmm. which was just super surprising to me because that's all I've literally ever seen done, and it's how I was trained to do the test. But so if you're listening to this, Please read the parvovirus snap test FAQ on the IDEX site because you might read some information that you're like, wow, I have literally never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was very confusing to me because I'm like, I swear I thought I had read that. Maybe I didn't. I don't know where that would have come from otherwise because, I mean, my first instinct is not really going to be like, I have a dry Q-tip. Where's the most uncomfortable place I could put that? I mean, they were pretty adamant that the instructions had never included rectal swab yeah. ever. And they, they were like, we can prove it because the studies that we did to get the test approved didn't include that. So it it wouldn't have gotten approved if yeah. we had then put it in the directions. So Makes sense. It must be one of those kind of like collective misremembered facts, right? Like, <laughs> Which makes me afraid for like other things that I'm like, what else do I think is right that isn't? <laughs> I know I talk about the podcast Hidden Brain a lot, but it is super awesome and I, I love it. But there's one episode of Hidden Brain about memory, how memories are formed and how we remember things. And after you listen to it, then you start to doubt that any of your memories are real or ever happened. That sounds upsetting. <laughs> Because um, they're so, they can be so easily influenced is the thing. It's just a fascinating episode. Anytime I'm like, no, I know that this is the thing. It's how I remember it. 
then I think about that episode and if it's a really, like, if something really important is riding on me remembering, I'm like, oh, why don't I look that up? <laughs> because, you know, like, yeah. um, <laughs> our minds are not infallible at all. No, especially the older you get. <laughs> JJ, the, the overall impression that I have from this episode is that it was kind of a bummer to listen to. But I don't know. I hope it's not. The Parvo episode or this? No, this. Um, no, well, I mean, Parvo is a bummer too, but I felt like we were at least excited. But like, I feel like, um, I feel like this one was a bummer to listen to or might be a bummer to listen to for. It might be, but I think everybody, I think it's important to talk about that study. The main takeaway is, you know, get more information and don't just read the headline and go with it because mm-hmm. it's not what you think. Yeah, don't just read the study title and the um the conclusion. <laughs> you gotta uh-huh. read the body of the study. And also, please vaccinate your damn dog. Please, please, mm-hmm. please, please, please. We hope that this episode was super informative and not a bummer. Yeah. And that you have some cupcakes or some delicious snack very soon. <laughs> yes. Enjoy yeah. a cup. Enjoy maybe two cupcakes. Yeah, I mean, you know, why not? And some milk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tomorrow. Well, this is not tomorrow in Parvo land. No, wrong. What the (laughs) podcast land. (laughs) Parvo land. But tomorrow in real life, um, the I'll Be Gone in the Dark series launches on HBO. Many of our uh, listeners are also fans of the podcast, My Favorite Murder, and therefore into true crime. Mm -hmm. So if you are into true crime, just know that... By the time this launches, it will have been two weeks since the airing of (laughs) Michelle McNamara documentary, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And also that the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, has agreed to plead guilty to all of the charges. As he should. Yeah, because he sucks. Yep. Stupid butt face. Um, The survivors are able to confront him in court. Oh, good. It. And it, it's going to save the taxpayers a lot of money and things like that that are also positive. But yeah. like, um, but yeah, he pled guilty to everything as if there was a question. Mm-hmm. It, it was incontrovertible evidence. Like that guy did it for sure. I'm not even going to say alleged. Come sue me. You know, like <laughs> you super did it. Well, if you have stories for the podcast, client stories, cases, fun things, maybe the best thing that happened to you this week that doesn't sound like a bad idea at all for us Mm, to read nope send them to us even if you just enjoyed a good cupcake yeah that's fine (laughs) send me a picture of your cupcake Uh uh-huh that sounds actually like a great idea i know all the cupcakes (laughs) we want cupcakes yeah please (laughs) send them to introvetspodcast at gmail.com please and we'll see you later bye bye